But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead, for he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, Saturday, and on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples. He taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So that's Justin Martyr. That's from his first apology. He's giving the emperor an understanding. How are these Christians worshiping? And it is the first and fullest description of Sunday worship outside of the New Testament that we have. Um, That doesn't mean there are no other references before this, but this is a very, you could admit, right, this is a very full-fledged description of what happens on Sundays. Um, We can discern a few features of early Christian worship from Justin. One of them is meeting on Sunday, right? Um, And he gives the reasons for it. He says, here's why Christians are meeting on Sunday. I was just talking to someone before uh, church that they were having a conversation with somebody who believed that uh, worship is still supposed to be on Saturday and that worship on Sunday was invented by, by the Vatican. Well, I mean, here, here Christians are in 150 AD, long before any discussion of the Vatican or conspiracies involving Roman leaders or anything of the sort. Um, they're meeting on Sunday and they're meeting very intentionally and their gathering is a worship gathering. Um, so it's nice to have this early evidence so you can see, yes, it's happening in the New Testament. It's happening after the New Testament. Uh, this is the norm. And he gives reasons, right? He says, the first day of the week is the day that God created everything. The first day of the week is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, the first day of the week is the day that Paul instructed the collection to be taken up. Um, and then we also know other reasons, right? This is the day when the church was gathered and Paul preached until midnight. And that guy fought, fell and broke his neck. Um, <laughs> Got to have worship on that day. Um, it's the day when John the Apostle was in the spirit, worshiping the Lord on the Isle of Patmos in, Roman, in Revelation 1.10. Um, and this became the day of Christian worship it, it, very quickly. Not, it was not a late development. It's very early on. Um, some other things that they did when they met together. We have the reading and the expounding of scripture. And I love what he says there. As long as time permits, I really need to be a little more. Yeah, I, I can go longer. I can go longer. Yeah, I've got till midnight. <laughs> Um, as long as time permits, um, there's prayer together, right? He's very clear that there is prayer happening together. Um, and he describes celebration of the Lord's supper. Now he also talks about wine and water being brought. Uh, almost certainly what they're doing is they're mixing water and wine together. They're not drinking the strongest wine. Um, you know, even you might think what we have on Sundays is strong. The stuff that they had, you know, it had to stay, it had to stay bug free, well, wherever it was. So it was very strong stuff. So they would cut it with some water. Um, but what we see here is also that he mentions it as a part of the service. It seems to be that every time they're meeting, they're doing this. Um, it's a very common occurrence for them to always make sure to have the Lord's Supper. Now, we have another source and that we can, talk, that we can look to. And it's even earlier than Justin, actually. And this guy doesn't like Christians at all. In fact, this guy persecutes Christians. Uh, his name is Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger, non-Christian source. Uh, what we have is a letter that is written from Pliny. And at this time, he's the governor of Bithynia, which is modern-day Turkey. And he's sending a letter to the Roman emperor Trajan. And this letter is, is from around AD 112. So, you know, significantly earlier than Justin's letter. 38, 40 years earlier. And um, 
So this would have, think about this. This letter would only have been written about 20 years after John, the Apostle John dies. We're not talking, well, we are talking very ancient, actually. We're talking extremely ancient. ancient. Um, and this is a letter from a, uh, an unbeliever who is persecuting Christians. He sees it as his civic duty to do so. And he's asking Trajan, what should I do with the Christians? And then he describes the Christians and he describes what the Christians are doing. And so I want you to listen to this description of the early worship of Christians from the perspective of this guy who hates Christians and who's persecuting Christians. So here's what he says. On a fixed day, the Christians used to meet before dawn and recite a hymn, the posit oh sorry, a hymn among themselves to Christ as though he were a god. I love that early you know, 112 AD witness to the fact that Christians believe that Jesus is God. Nice to have even a pagan helping out with that. So far from binding themselves by oath to commit any crime, they swore to keep from theft, robbery, adultery, breach of faith, and not to deny any trust money deposited with them when called upon to deliver it. This ceremony over, they used to depart and meet again to take food, but it was of no special character and entirely harmless. So that's their, his description, you know. They get together, they talk about how they're not going to be bad anymore, and then they eat some food, and then they leave, right? And they, they make sure to sing songs about Jesus. Not a bad description of Christian worship, really. Um, what, do we, what do we discern from them here, right? First, we, we know that they met before dawn. At least that's, what, that's how Pliny is describing it. Did they all everywhere meet before dawn? We don't know that, but we know this. Wherever he sent... He probably sent a spy into a Christian worship service and they watched it and described to him what they saw. And so they're meeting before dawn probably because they had to work. A lot of Christians were slaves. A lot of Christians were people who uh, lived a hard life. And so you, you know, they, um, that, that probably explains why they're meeting early, at least from everything I've read. That's the explanation that I've seen given. Um, second, we see that they worship Jesus as God. You know, you have this very non, early non-Christian source telling us that early Christians believed in the deity of Christ. As I mentioned, I, I love that. Um, third, it, you know, he describes the stuff they say they're not going to do. <laughs> right? He describes all the stuff they say they're going to do. What does it sound like they're reading here in the service? The yeah, it sounds like they're reading the Ten Commandments. It sounds like they're reading the law of God. And then they're talking about it. They're talking about how we're not going to do these things. We're, we're going to be righteous people. We're not going to be bad people. I mean, it sounds like a sermon. It sounds like that's a, a pagan's description of what a sermon sounds like to a pagan's ears, right? Um, so they're reading the scripture. They're summarizing the, the Ten Commandments. Um, there's reading of the law of God. Um, fourth, he mentions that they eat food, right? It seems to be a description of the Lord's Supper, right? Um, this may have been a separate service. We know this eventually was the practice to have a service of the word and then to have the Eucharist. Um, we will actually talk about that division in a little bit. Um, but here you have this pagan who hates Christianity, hates Christians. He's reporting what, what we did in the earliest years of the church. And it lines up with what we see in the New Testament. It lines up with later evidence as well. So I just love being able to go to these sources. You've got Christians, you've got non-Christians. We don't have a lot of sources, but we have some sources. And there are more too. I'm just not, I didn't want to flood you with all of these different readings. Um, let me just mention some things about early Christian worship. Um, early church did not use instruments as far as we can tell. 
Um, congregational singing was the emphasis. They get together and they're singing congregationally. Now, we see some things in the book of Revelation. We see instruments in heaven. Uh, you know, I think there is, there is a potential, potentially an indication that the church could have used something to help with singing music. But even then, if they used an instrument, it would have simply been to, to hit a note so that they could sing right, uh, so that you didn't sing poorly. Um, but so far, we really have no evidence other than the fact that the book of Revelation includes re- uh, instruments in its heavenly worship that indicates that they used instruments in the early church. Uh, more than likely, the preponderance of evidence is that they didn't use instruments. Um, always a possibility, but it doesn't look like it. Um, second feature of early church worship I want to mention to you is the singing of psalms and hymns. Uh, the early church sang the book of Psalms, right? They did not simply abandon the Psalter because they, in time, grew to not be seen as Jews. Instead, they look at the Psalms and what do they say? They say, this is still our book. This is our book. This, is, this, is, this whole book speaks to Jesus. It was the song book of Israel. It's inspired word of God. Why would we not sing it? And so they're still singing the Psalms. Um, the evidence indicates they also sang hymns in the New Testament time, from the New Testament time as well, specifically texts from the New Testament. So we have evidence that they sang Mary's Magnificat from uh, Luke 1, 46 to 55, for example. Um, they would have set it to some sort of, of meter, some sort of, of singable version of that song. And for somebody who's Greek, that's going to be way less of an obstacle than it would be for us. For us, we would have to find a way to rhyme it. We'd have to find a way to make it singable. And for them, you know, it's already written in poetry, in poetic style. And so they just sing it. Um, You know, you get jealous sometimes of not knowing Greek and just everybody not knowing Greek. Um, I want to actually, this might be a good time for you to take out a hymnal. If if you have a hymnal under your seat, I actually want to take you to a few a few um, hymns, because you may not know this, but we actually have some very old songs that we sing in here. Um, for example, go to number 736 in your Trinity hymnal. 736. Um, you actually, 735, I think, is the one that we sing. On Sunday mornings. Um, but look at that date down there at the bottom far left corner. What does it say for in your hymnal? Second century. The Gloria Patri dates from the second century. Um, I was listening to some lectures by Ligon Duncan where he was talking about worship in the early church. And he said that what they would do is they would sing this after singing psalms. So they would sing psalms and then they would sing the Gloria Patri after singing the psalms. What are they doing there? They're putting the stamp of Jesus upon the Psalms. They don't sing the name of Jesus when they sing Psalms. So what do they do? They, they, they have a song that they do sing that indicates the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost um, as a way of sort of saying, hey, this is Christian psal- psalmody we're singing here. We're singing the Psalms, and this is Christian. It's explicitly Christian. Um, here's another one to turn to. Turn to number 102. In fact, we're going to hang out and sort of down in the, up, the upper 100s. For a little bit. <clears throat> You're going to get really disappointed because we're not singing these songs. Um, that was the only one that we actually sing. In fact, I went back and I, I thought the lyrics in all of these songs, songs I'm, going to be, songs I'm going to be showing them are so good. It's really disappointing that we, don't, we aren't singing them. But 
Um, if, if Carolyn went to the piano and played you some of these songs, you would know why I haven't introduced them yet. Um, that doesn't mean they're not singable, but singing songs in minor keys that are tricky, uh, you always have to think carefully about how to introduce those. So, um, uh, 102, All Glory Be to Thee Most High. This is set to a German tune from the 1800s. It is a challenging song for congregations to sing. Um, but you know, you look at the lyrics here, and it is a Trinitarian hymn of adoration. It's a very old song from the fourth century. That would be the 300s. Um, look on the next page right next to it. There is, uh, there's a hymn called Te, Te Deum, which is a very old song as well. Sometimes it's credited to Ambrose in the late 300s, but it's probably older than Ambrose. Ambrose is the guy who usually gets the credit for this song. Um, Holy God, we praise your name. Lord of all, we bow before you. All on earth, your scepter claim. All in heaven, above, adore you. Infinite, your vast domain. Everlasting is your reign. Really good song. The sort of song you wish was easier to sing. Um, It is also, by the way, more singable. This is more singable, I think. Number 102. Um, The oldest complete hymn we still have in this Psalter, and because Te Deum is not a complete hymn, it's not what you would think of as a complete hymn. Uh, Instead, it becomes the basis for, for number 103 in the hymnal. But if you turn to number 160 in the Trinity hymnal, you will actually find the oldest complete hymn that is still sung, certainly, in the Trinity hymnal. Um, Shepherd of Tender Youth. It's a song by Clement of Alexandria. And um, a lovely song. Again, challenging, challenging to read, but again, not as, not as bad as, as some of them. Um, Shepherd of Tender Youth, guiding in love and truth through winding ways. Christ, our triumphant King, we come your name to sing. Here we, our children, bring to shout your praise. So you can see that generational covenantal uh, framework coming into play here, right? We're bringing our children to worship you too. This is not just us. We and our families come before you, Lord, together. Um, Really a wonderful note. Um, One more song I want to bring to your attention, and I really want to draw your attention to the lyrics because they are potent. Um, The author of this hymn is Gregory of Nazianzen. The song is called, O Light That Knew No Dawn. Have any of you ever sung this song in a church ever? I'm number 25. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't say it. <laughs> number 25, O Light That Knew No Dawn. One thing you need to know about Gregory of Nazianzen, if you ever want to read anybody on the Trinity, go to Gregory of Nazianzen. If you want to read really meaty, meaty stuff that is written in the crucible of debates on the deity of Christ, Gregory of Nazianzen is the guy to go to. Uh, he's one of the Cappadocian fathers. He is a blessing. I, I have a volume of his sermons, and I love to read Gregory. Uh, even his letters are great. Um, he, it's just very, very rich stuff. But he wrote this song, and here's what happened. They, who could tell me what Arius taught? The name Arius rings a bell. What did Arius teach? All right, thank you, Craig. Clearly sat in on the officer training class. I like this. Arius taught that Christ was created, that the person of the Son, there was a time when he was not. And here was what Arius did. 
for a good chunk of church history, if you went through the streets of cities, and I know this sounds unbelievable, but people used to be more interested in these things than they are today. They, children would walk through the streets singing songs written by Arius. There was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. And children would sing this song. And so one of the things that Luther understood in the Reformation, one of the things that Arius understood was that if you want to capture the minds of people, you must also capture their hearts. And one of the ways you do that is through song. And so Arius has his own song. And what does Gregory of Nazianzen say? He says, we need to also be producing hymns. We need to be producing good songs that explicitly teach Trinitarianism, right? And here's where I think I'm going to defend psalm singing till my dying breath. Um, But I also think there is a place for good Christology in your songs so that we... And so that we sing aloud explicitly the glories of Jesus in a way I think the Psalms just inhibit. You're not able to, to do that just with the Psalms. If you're only singing Psalms, you're not getting the deity of Christ, certainly in an explicit way. And you have a song like this written by Gregory. And I want to read this to you because what he's writing here is the sun was not created. The sun always was. Listen to how he sings. Listen to what he says. The light here, by the way, is Jesus. It's the sun. O light that knew no dawn, that shines to endless day, all things in earth and heaven are lustered by thy ray. No eye can to thy throne ascend, nor mind thy brightness comprehend. Um, He is singing about the uncreated Lord Jesus, and he's making that explicit. This is is very meaty theology contained in this hymn. Uh, I'm glad that it's still in our hymnal. I don't know whether it would survive. It doesn't get sung nearly enough. Um, but even in, even working on this class, what I've honestly been thinking is, I need to. We need to start finding ways to bring these songs in because keeping these ancient hymns alive, I think, is would be a blessing. Um, but here was what they, the early church fathers recognized: heresy gets spread by song. And, you know, you could probably think of some songs even on Christian radio that teach things that are not sound. Uh, that people come away having a picture of what God is or may be like that wouldn't be true to what Scripture says. And so you can see that even music can be very destructive or it can be very helpful to the church. Um, here we have a song that's deeply helpful. Um, so that's, that's psalms and hymns in the early church. We're going to talk about psalms and hymns actually in each phase. So we'll get to the medieval times and we will actually look at some psalm, psalms and hymns or hymns that they sang during the Middle Ages as well. A few other things about early church worship though, things that would stand out to you if you went to an early church uh, service. What would you notice? For one thing, they stood through the entire gathering. Um, that's echoes of the, the synagogue there. Um, if somebody was tired, they would lean against the wall. Uh, there was a saying, the weak go to the wall. Um, they saw standing as an appropriate posture for prayer. We see this with Justin, right? What do they do when they go to pray? They stand up. They stand up to pray. Um, we have art from the early church. It shows Christians standing. How are they praying? They stand with their arms spread out, with their upturned palms and their open eyes looking up to heaven. Um, that's, what, that's what the prayer looks like in the early church. Um, Going by Justin's account, it looks like worship is fairly fixed in form and simple in structure. You see that it's not elaborate. Even the pagan can describe what they do. Um, 
if a pagan went into, say, a Roman Catholic church today and looked at that service, would they even be able to describe what happened? I, I don't think so. Um, this is a theme, by the way, that I'm going to keep going back to, the simplicity of biblical worship. And you're going to start seeing how biblical worship keeps accumulating more and more and more pieces until finally it becomes almost unwieldy and hard for people to comprehend. Um, the earliest order that we have of a fixed service, like if you want to know what an actual early service looks like, the earliest one that we have recorded is written by Hippolytus. And he died in 236, uncertain the date of his uh, of his liturgy, but he even includes instructions on how to pray during an ordination service. So you can go to Hippolytus and see how did they pray. He actually gives prayers that they pray over this person who's being ordained, um, which has been a special interest to me and maybe not as much to you guys, but um, we have this, you know, it's pretty amazing that we have these things. What's the service structured like in the early church? Sorry, sign announcing what we're doing today. Um, what does it look like? Well, it's actually super simple. The first half of the service is the service of the word. And the second half of the service is the Eucharist. This is how they divide the service. I'm going to move this more so more of you can see it. Um, so the first half of the service is the service of the word. This is what they would do. First half of the service is open to baptized believers, those being instructed in the faith, and also curious outsiders. So you could come in if you weren't a believer. You could come and participate in the first half, the service of the word. Um, what's the structure? Here's the structure of it. Just in your head, pretend this is, this is our service. Just pretend. Opening greeting and response. Sounds pretty familiar. Um, extended scripture reading from the Old Testament. They lead off by reading a text from the Old Testament. It was not usually a short reading. It was a, usually a longer reading if they could get their hands on it. Um, remember, Bibles aren't growing on trees. You know, you have to find a, a scroll. You have to find a copy of scripture somewhere or you have to have it memorized. They would respond to the Old Testament reading by singing a psalm or a hymn, probably a psalm. And then after that, they would do a New Testament, extended New Testament reading. And then they would sing after that a psalm or a hymn. Is that still familiar? I mean, still to me, it sounds like what we do. By the way, this is, this is, this is not me retrofitting our service onto the old one. Uh, it just, just like showing the, the commonality here. Then they would do a scripture reading um, from one of the gospels. They would read a scripture from one of the gospels, usually. And then they would have a sermon. And the person who was preaching would be seated for the sermon. Um, and then after the sermon was over with, they would dismiss everybody but baptized and catechized members. So if you're, if you're not a member of the church, then you actually leave. You actually leave. Now, what is one thing that it seems odd that I didn't mention as part of the worship service so far? Okay, there's no offering that we know of. What else? Okay, there we go. That's kind of missing, right? <laughs> That's kind of missing. Well, we'll talk about that in just a second. Here's what would happen. You have the second half of, uh, of the service. They did not. Now, this is according to Nick Needham. I'm giving you a source for this because 
I'm dependent on all the sources, okay? So Nick Needham says that they did not pray in the first half of the service. And the reason they did not was because of who was present. Who was present in the service? You have non-believers. You have, you know, somebody in the, the, the fellowship that is maybe not a Christian. And so what happens? They believe, as the scripture I think shows us, that when you worship God together and specifically when you're praying, you are participating with the heavenly host and that you are, in a sense, entering into heaven as you're praying. And so what did they want to avoid? They wanted to avoid sullying the throne of heaven with unbelievers, with people who present who are part of the gathering. He didn't want them. They didn't want them pretending to be part of the gathering. And so they would wait till the second half to do their prayers. Um, you know, these are, this is different, right? We don't do that. We'll, we'll pray with unbelievers in the room. But they had a very high view of prayer and they had a very high view of worship. And so that caused them to, to pause about having unbelievers in the service. Um, so what have they done at the sec- by the second half of the service? They've sent people away who aren't going to participate in the Eucharist. So then the believers would bring their own bread and wine for communion. This was the offering that they would take. They would, um, people, families would bring their own bread. They'd bring their own wine. They would sit at a table up at the front. And, um, and then the person who's presiding, they, that's, I'm using that term vaguely because Justin calls him the president. We want the president in the sense we usually think of it today, serving us the Lord's Supper, I don't think. Um, but the president is whoever is presiding over the gathering. What do they do? They take the bread, they take the wine, and they distribute it out to the congregation. And um, the deacons actually would be the ones to do that. So the deacons would take it and they would distribute to all the people. Uh, believers were offering themselves to God in the supper and they were receiving Jesus back. Um, Augustine said this, there you are on the table, there you are in the cup. Um, he's talking to the believers and he's he, in, a, in a strange way. That's sort of how he's, he's at least giving some different perspective on how the Lord's Supper is not only a reflection of Christ, but it's also a reflection of the body of Christ together. Here we all are on this table. We brought all of this together. We did this together. Um, uh, prayers would be led by a leader. Here's what they would do. They'd give a topic for prayer. He would maybe announce, here's what we're going to pray for. And then the leader would audibly pray for the congregation's petitions. Um, by all accounts, these were free prayers. They wouldn't have been written prayers. They wouldn't have been structured prayers like maybe you see later with Roman Catholicism or the Anglicans. Um, this would be someone praying from the heart, uh, praying from God's word. Remember, these are people who memorize a lot of scripture. So you can imagine a lot of scripture being woven throughout their prayers. Um, and then they would uh, observe what was called the agape meal. Uh, another word for it would be love feast. This is a term maybe you've heard uh, referred to in the, old, in the early church. What does the agape meal look like? There's a greeting. There's a kiss of peace. Uh, the deacons would take the elements for communion from those present. There would be a responsive recitation. They would uh, read some passage of scripture. And then those who are present would antiphonally respond with some kind of reading from scripture as well. They would break the loaves, distribute the bread, and then they would distribute the cup. Um, did they have one single cup they're all drinking from? It's hard to know. They may have had multiple cups that they're handing out. Uh, did they have a hundred of those little cute little plastic cups like we do? Probably not. Um, probably not. <laughs> and then here's something we don't do. Members would take home the leftover bread and wine and they would celebrate communion in the home. 
You know, gives me a heartache, but uh, they did do it. Um, and then there would be a benediction given and they would dismiss. Is that miles away from our practice? I mean, I, I just think it's very familiar. It's very familiar. I think part of it, that part of what makes it familiar is the centrality of the word, uh, the, you know, the centrality and importance of the supper. Um, the, there's still the benediction that's given at the end of the service. Now, something that would differentiate it is that the services would last about three hours. Um, second half of the, of the service is also fenced, right? The, it was only for baptized believers. Unbelievers weren't even allowed to be there while they were distributing the elements. You know, they, they fence beforehand, and then there is no need to fence after because everybody's already been sent away. Who shouldn't be participating? Um, I'm tempted to talk about some of the developments that start happening in the fourth century, but if I do, I won't be able to stop. And so instead, I'm going to take a really nasty chance and let you guys uh, give questions, and you'll probably hear I don't know from me. But any of this stuff, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts, questions you might have. Craig? How do you spell apologist? Uh, H-I-P-P-O-L-Y-T. U.S. Thank you. What's your Nathan source? Was he the one you were just quoting? Yes. Uh, the book, actually, I planned on bringing it today. It was going to be my book I recommended, and I forgot to bring it. Um, there was a volume, uh, uh, it was a festschrift for somebody. I'm trying to remember who it was, but it's called Give Praise to God. And he wrote an essay in that book about early church worship. And so when I first started, actually, putting things together for this, I actually started reading that chapter and just started taking tons of notes down. And so a lot of what I said actually comes from Nick Needham. N-E-E-D-H-A-M. Yeah, Asha. You haven't said anything about confession of sin yet as a element of worship. Yeah. I, you know what? In my sources, there was no corporately led confession of sin that I can see. It would be very surprising to me, though, during the responsive recitation at the agape meal if there wasn't a confession of sin there. So I, I suspect that the responsive reading there or the recitation does include that. Um, but I could probably look closer and find out what was actually the contents of those recitations if I wasn't painting with such a broad brush when I took my notes down. Uh, somebody who knows history better should should say so, but um, there's a difference between Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger. Um, but this is Pliny the Younger. The Elder was his father, and his father died in Pompeii. There you go. So this would not have been the one who died in Pompeii. Well, but the Pliny that I'm thinking of is the one that actually wrote down the history. So I don't think it was the Elder. That was the Elder. It was the Elder who died in Pompeii? Okay. Larry? So when we think about the word and the sacraments, mm-hmm. we're, uh, and we see the word supper, what, what about baptism? They do not make reference to baptism, at least in the services. Here's what starts to happen, and we're going to talk about baptism next, next class. But baptism by the 4th century, 3rd and 4th century, starts to become extremely elaborate. It starts to become extremely elaborate where there are massive ceremonies involved, 
where you actually would spend years catechizing a person before you would baptize them. Um, and then the day of, I mean, we're going to talk about this, but you know, the day of, they're doing all sorts of stuff. They would have them outside uh, with, their, with their back to the sun as the sun is rising. And then they would have all the people to be baptized turn and face the sun as it rises. And then they would like anoint them with oil and they did a, a ceremonial washing. They would have people, they would be baptized unclothed. Um, just uh, all thanks, I, th- I think it's Cyril of, uh, I don't want to get the name wrong. But we're going to talk about um, where that comes from and why that starts to happen. But it appears that, that within 100 or 200 years, baptism is not just as simple as pouring some water on somebody's head. I mean, it is pouring water on somebody's head, but it involves a lot leading up to it as well. So, and so and to answer that, it looks like baptisms take place outside the service. Yeah. Follow-up question. Yeah. Oh yeah, if you had a catechism, if you had a catechumen who is, um, you know, who's coming to faith from paganism, you know, they want to make sure they're no longer pagan, and so they want to, and so they, it becomes very elaborate to co- sort of get the paganism out of them, if you want to think of it that way, um, especially as more pagans come into the church. That's more of an example of adult conversion. Yes, this would be an adult baptism. I think. Uh, because you've got super early evidence of, of infant baptisms taking place. So it's not one or the other. Okay. Just want to be clear. Yeah. Carolyn, you had a question. I was just going to make a comment that there are quite a few of us still um, from the original, you might say, congregation that uh, we have sung a lot of those old hymns. Mm. And so I think there's a body of familiarity that you probably could bring them in and wouldn't be... I was driving to church this morning thinking out loud with my wife because I was telling her, man, these are just such good hymns. But I struggle to sing them. Um, I, as I was listening to them, I thought, would I catch on by, like verse, by the fourth time through? And I don't know. Um, because, you know, just you, you, you ever sing a hymn and you just know I'm never going to get this. This is just this one's not is, is getting right by me. And I actually thought, I wonder if there's a good way to practically do it. Maybe you email the congregation a YouTube video of the song. And you could say, listen to this song for the next month. And in a month, we're going to sing it during the service. At least some people in the church would have listened and, and, and had the song in their heads and, and be able to sing it. So I think there is a way to do it. Um, and I want to think more, more about that. Because I would love to bring less modern, more ancient into the service. It's time. Well, next time we're going to talk about some of the unhealthy developments that start happening in the early church. Um, And we're going to keep doing this because I want you to see where some of this stuff starts. And I want you to feel like you kind of can picture where these things come from so that you don't so they don't just feel like they pop up suddenly out of nowhere. I want you to see how they begin. Uh, And if you want to know what I mean by that, you got to come back next week. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving your church and for giving us your word and by guiding us uh, by scripture so that we know how to worship you, so that we know what pleases you. And I pray that we would be striving to be more biblical uh, and more sound in how we worship you. 
I pray that we would be encouraged by our brothers and sisters who've come before us. I pray that we would see a kinship with them, that we would not see them as distant um, aliens to us, but instead that we would see them as very near and dear to us and that we would see ourselves as part of their family. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.